Well, we come now to that point in our service where we look and reflect upon a passage of Scripture. We are beginning a series in the book of Galatians. And so if you will turn to the first chapter of Galatians in your Bibles, if you have them, or in your Bible app, or if you just want to look on the back panel of the bulletin, you will see the Scriptures that are going to be reflected upon this morning. And here to help us with the reading of it, James. Galatians 1, 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are beginning a series this fall on a letter Paul wrote to a group of churches in the Roman Empire in a part of modern Turkey which then was called Galatia. This letter is considered the Magna Carta of Christianity by those who call themselves Reformed or Reformation Christians. This is one of the great charters of human freedom under God. Paul wrote to the churches which he had visited. Acts 13 and 14 tell the story of his missionary journeys. He founded these churches around 45 AD. This is about 49 AD when he's writing a few years later when false teachers have moved into these cities and said that the gospel is not enough. Jesus is not enough to make you acceptable and pleasing to God. You need to add to the work of Jesus something additional. In the case that we are about to examine, circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law that the Jews followed. That's what they wanted to add. Now, most of us who are Christians here, and many of us are Christians here, many of us are curious about Christianity here, but those of us who are Christians here actually don't think too much about this idea of adding something to the gospel. We think it's kind of generally a good idea to do more than you're asked to do. But Paul says right here at the outset, it's not a good thing. It is, in fact, wrong. It is evil. It robs God of his glory. It robs you of your joy. And it completely distorts Christianity into another religion altogether. And so Paul says here, right at the outset, in an astonishingly abrupt and confrontive beginning, don't mess with the gospel. There is only one gospel. It is not open for interpretation, for in it is life. So don't mess with the gospel. 
He gives three reasons here in his introduction. Firstly, don't mess with it because of where it comes from. Secondly, don't mess with it because of what it is. And thirdly, don't mess with it because of what happens if you do mess with it. Don't mess with it because of where it comes from, the source. Don't mess with it because of what it is, the content. Don't mess with it because of what happens if you mess with it, the consequences. So let's look at those three things that Paul is saying to us. Firstly, don't mess with it because of where it comes from, the source of the gospel. Paul begins his letter with a very clear statement, Paul, an apostle. Now, he has said he's an apostle in other letters, but look how he qualifies and builds upon it. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. Paul is very quickly, very briefly, but very clearly saying something. I am sent from God. I am an apostle because God has met me. I have been an actual eyewitness to the risen Jesus. That's the qualification for an apostle. Therefore, having personally met the risen Jesus, seen him, talked to him, experienced him, I have learned who he is. I have learned what his message is. And it is beyond prevarication. It is indisputable. Jesus is the risen king. He is God himself. And he has given me a delegated authority to tell you what he told me. Paul says, I didn't make it up. I had no hand in crafting it. This is God's message. This gospel is his. I am his commissioned, called, sent messenger. And Paul's saying this because people are questioning his authority. They are arguing that not only did Paul get the content wrong, he had no authority to give what he gave when he gave the gospel to these people. God is different from the way you're talking, they are arguing. Who is Paul to tell us what God is teaching? Paul makes something clear that we need to hear. God's message is not ours to bend, to shape, to twist, or to distort so that we like it better. Paul says, I saw Jesus personally risen from the dead and he gave me his words. I can't mess with them because they're not mine. They're his. And so the implication for us is clear. Though this book was written thousands of years ago, and though our culture tends to distrust anything older than about three years, (laughs) and we don't like to give anything binding authority over them, this isn't like any other document. This isn't like anything else that humanity has come up with because humanity didn't. God did. Therefore, his message is timeless and timelessly true. Don't mess with the gospel because it is the timeless message of an eternal, infinite God. Secondly, don't mess with it because of what it is, because of the content of the gospel. Verse 3, Paul picks up what the gospel message is. It's a very short one. It's that sort of second actual paragraph In your bulletin, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present 
evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is one of the shortest and most succinct summaries of the gospel, but it is all there. Paul wants to make clear that the gospel is not like any other religion you have ever encountered or any other ethical, social, or religious teaching you will ever see again. In fact, Jesus came to upend the whole understanding of what true religion is. See, most religions teach you how to give yourself to God. The gospel teaches us how God gave himself for us. Most religions teach us how to ascend to God and please him. The gospel says you cannot ascend to God, so he descends to you in grace. Look what it says. It says Jesus did something for a purpose, for something. It says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Those are the two phrases that are so crucial here. And herein lies the upending countercultural scandal of the gospel. He gave himself for us. What did he give? He gave his authority when he came down from heaven. He gave up his ability to be everywhere when he became incarnate and limited in a human being. He voluntarily gave up some of his, or gave up. He voluntarily restrained the execution and outlet and unleashing of his attributes of God to become fully human. He gave up his, his privilege as a one to be worshipped and became fully human. And though we asked that we worship him, he gave us the right to reject him. And we did. Here's the scandal of the gospel. Jesus became one of us. And becoming one of us, he then gave up his life to be arrested, tortured, falsely accused, and hung on a cross. Why did he give himself for us? He gave himself, it says, for our sins. He came because there is an issue we have with God. Our sins create a barrier between us and God, our selfishness, our darkness, the evil, cruel thoughts that flit through our heads and sometimes make their way out through our actions. These things make us guilty and wrong, not just in the eyes of history, but in the eyes of God himself who wrote history. And here then is the heart of the gospel, not that we ascend to God, but that he came all the way down to us and coming down to us, he became our substitute. He died in our place. Paul will say a few verses later in this same letter, he became a curse for us. He took the guilt of your sin and he voluntarily bore it that you don't have to because the price has been paid. That is the scandalous beauty of the gospel. Martin Luther understood this in his preface to the book of Galatians. He said, these words, he gave himself for our sins, these words are the very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of righteousness. You see, Luther understood human nature. We, like every generation before us and every generation that will come after us, we do not like to be called guilty and wrong and selfish and corrupt. We want to think better of ourselves. We want to feel more, quote unquote, righteous. I understand that. I hate having my faults pointed out to me. Ask my wife how often I bristle. Ask my daughter. 
My daughter is brilliant at pointing out my faults. She can see them in a heartbeat, and she knows how defensive I get. But I'm not alone. David Brooks, writing recently in a New York Times article called The Shame Culture, pointed out that while modern culture moved away from belief, modern Western culture, belief in personal guilt for personal wrong, we have, he said, we've actually simply replaced it with a shame culture, collective guilt and shame for collective wrong. Partly fueled by social media, Brooks points out that we have moved from a world regulated by conscience to one regulated by social shame. Hear his words. The desire now is to be embraced and praised by a community, and it's intense. People dread being exiled and condemned. Our moral life is not built on the continuum of right and wrong anymore. It's now built on the continuum of inclusion and exclusion. He continues, this creates a set of common behavior patterns. First, members of a group lavish one another with praise so that they might all feel accepted and included. Second, there are enforcers within the group who build personal power and reputation by policing the group and condemning those who break the group code. Social media is now vicious for those who don't fit in. Twitter erupts in instant ridicule for anyone who stumbles against these rules. Third, people are extremely nervous and anxious that their group might be condemned or denigrated. Therefore, they demand instant respect or recognition for their group. Why have we replaced the one with the other? Why have we moved from the guilt culture of conscience and right and wrong to the shame culture of inclusion and exclusion? He points very intriguingly to why. Because the shame culture is very powerful at silencing guilt. He says, shame culture allows the community to feel that moral judgment against them are oppression and therefore can rightfully be ignored or pushed back against. So we run around shaming and calling others oppressors to avoid facing personal individual guilt. But can we actually? Are we perfect? Now, are we selfish? Yes. We only need to look at the mess our society is in, and I'll pick one, the epidemic of sexual slavery throughout the world to say we are not guiltless. We are sinful, selfish people. The verdict of God in Romans 3 still stands. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Luther was right. The gospel humbles us by laying bare and revealing our guilt and need for forgiveness. And then the gospel cures us by providing the very forgiveness we desperately need. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. He gave himself for our sins. Finally, for what purpose? To deliver us from the present evil age. In the worldview of the gospel, there are only two ages. The present age we live in, filled with good, but also evil, beauty, but also brokenness, 
corruption, death, decay, disease, and the, and the age to come, a perfect, sinless, corruptionless, pollutionless, evil-free world. It is the world that Jesus came from at the throne of heaven to enter this age. It is the world he's bringing in and the age he will bring in at the end of history when he comes and gives us an eternal new creation. That is the gospel that God has given himself Jesus for our sins so that we might inherit one day a new age to come. Therefore, implications. Firstly, if the gospel is true, you don't need new teaching, you don't need more education, you need deliverance from this age dominated by evil and the evil one. And you can't do it yourself. You need forgiveness before a holy God because you can't make yourself guiltless. And so it takes a God-sized solution in Jesus Christ to come in his life and death and resurrection to pay for your sin, to, to make you his adopted child, and to make you fit for a new age, an age to come. It's a glorious message. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, need to know this. You will never be able to bootstrap yourself to be beautiful enough, moral enough, or ethical enough to meet the standards of the God who is. You're going to need to be delivered. You're going to need to fall back on God's forgiveness and grace. And he's offered it to you in Jesus. Come to Jesus and let his offer, let his life and death for you be your substitute for your own guilt. And if you're a Christian, rejoice. Rejoice, it's paid. But don't forget. Don't move past it. Don't add to it. Why? Because of the third point. Because of the consequences of distorting the gospel. We pick it up in verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Him, in this case, is God the Father. And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there, there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Let's see what he's saying here, and it's extraordinary, is that if you add something to the gospel, you actually turn it into something different altogether. If you've ever seen, if, if you've ever had a vacuum and you puncture the vacuum, it's no longer a vacuum. Just the littlest bit of air destroys the whole nature of the vacuum. To add to the gospel is to depart from, he says, not only the gospel, but from him, from God the Father. The word depart, the Greek word literally means to desert, like a, like a soldier deserting their post, or to betray someone who thought you were their friend. It's to betray and desert God. You see the false teachers, by adding requirements to what the gospel said, which was just simply believe and rest in and trust in what Jesus did for you and accept the gift, they say, no, no, now go earn God's pleasure. Add to it. And then Paul says something startling. If anybody, if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. As we've said before, and he repeats it, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's not personal here. Some commentators think Paul's just personally angry with people because they defamed his authority. No, no, no. Paul says if anyone ever at any time throughout history does this, 
It's a betrayal of God. It's a different gospel. You see, Paul is so fierce because the gospel is so important. He says that Jesus did everything to deliver you and make you beautiful before God and therefore to add anything, anything, any effort, any works, anything to the finished work of what Jesus did is to look Jesus in the face and go, yeah, it wasn't enough. I'm going to add something to it now. Think about that. Why is Paul so fierce? Because it's so dishonoring to God to tell him that you, sending your beloved son all the way from heaven, having him be limited into humanity, into human form, having him live a life of rejection, having him die a death of substitution, the infinite, holy, pure Jesus isn't enough. How dishonoring is that to God to hear? Martin Luther, in his treatise on God on good works, said, If we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, or if we expect to please him only through and after our own works, that is all pure deception. It outwardly looks like it is honoring God, but inwardly it is setting up ourself as a false savior. It's dishonoring to God. Secondly, it's corrosive to your own soul. I said this over and over again, but I will say it again. Almost all of us who are here, wherever we are in our journey of faith, approach God from the standpoint of thinking we need to earn his pleasure. Even those who are Christians here think God loves us. We believe Jesus died for us, but we feel very little of his pleasure and his delight in us and to us. We sense some vague or real disappointment over our admittedly (laughs) not great record of obeying him and loving him and caring. And so what we do is we impute to God what we would do in God's place, a kind of reserved, arms folded, okay, I'll, I'll let you in, but you're disappointing me. So we, tr- we come to God and we start acting like tenants to a landlord. I'm going to pay some rent. I'm going to earn my place here. You've, you've got me here, thank you, but I've I, I got to pay the rent now. Thank you for, you know, thank you for the down payment. Thank you for the deposit, the first and last month's rent of Jesus. But let me pay the rent. Let me do X to pay the rent. Let me do Y to stay in your good books. You see, we need to appease him, our landlord. But we don't. Appeasing God is not what Jesus died for us to try and do. Jesus fully appeased God if you want to use such a trivial word. He satisfied every requirement of God. In fact, he fully pleased God. He fully and forever satisfied God's demands of justice. He purchased our adoption as his children. And it is only then, when we begin to realize that you have God's eternal, unshakable, unbreakable love and pleasure because Christ bought it for you, that you can begin to actually obey God because you obey him from the right motivation. I got married a few years ago. (laughs) And uh, I found out that, uh, uh, you know, I I was a romantic guy. I I had not done much studying on on the different ways that, that people feel love or anything. So I just assumed that my wife would receive love the way I wanted to give it. So I remember about the third day of our marriage and, and uh, I'm coming home 
uh, from uh, the office. Sue has already gotten home from the office. She's beaten me. And so Sue's preparing a meal because her love language is doing an act of service. My love language, based on the typical male, you know, watching rom-coms, is I'm going to buy her a gift. So I got nice flowers to her, and I, I get out of the, uh, co- the condo's basement parking lot, and I get out, and I got these nice flowers, and I'm ready to surprise her, and there she comes uh, out of the condo toward her car. And I'm like, hi, honey. She goes, oh, hi, honey. Uh, I'll see you in a few minutes. <coughs> I got your flowers. That's nice, honey. I'll be back. I just got to go to Loblaws. So gone. And I'm just sitting there in the parking lot with a, some flowers in my hand going, that didn't work very well. And so uh, I bought her flowers about two weeks later, and then I bought her flowers a couple weeks later, thinking eventually she's going to say something about them. So finally she says, hey, thank you for all the flowers, but they're a waste of money. (laughs) Could you buy me something practical? So I bought her a teapot about two weeks. She loved the teapot. So guess what I did the next few months? Yeah, four teapots later she said enough. (laughs) Finally I got, you know, a clue as a husband and said, honey... How do you feel loved? How can I make you feel loved? And she says, Dan, you get up earlier than me. Every morning when I wake up, I have a fresh cup of coffee made for me, and I'll know you love me. (laughs) 24 years later, that's how she feels love. My daughter, this summer, and I and my wife were at a conference, a Christian conference, and it, it had a little bookstore, and bookstores... Christian bookstores have really cheesy, good books and really cheesy things to buy. And, and, and there was one of this, you know, best dad in the world with a verse or something. It was black. It was kind of cool. And uh, Sue knows that I find those things fairly suburban and cheesy. And so, uh, and so I always never want one of those, uh, even though I love gifts. But my daughter has the same gift mix as I do. She likes to give gifts as her love language. And so I was talking to Sue, making a joke about this thing, which was actually quite a nice-looking mug. Uh, You know, you should buy me this. And Sue's like, yeah, whatever. My daughter heard. We went back to the apartment uh, that we're staying or the the place they'd given us. And then she said, oh, I got to go out. I got some money. I want to go buy something in a bookstore. And I thought, oh, that's nice. She's going to be a mature person, go meet a friend, and go buy something for herself. No, no, no. She went and bought me that mug. That cheesy black mug's my favorite mug in the history of my life. (laughs) But here's the point. My daughter knows that I love her. That cup wasn't the rent she paid to keep her dad loving her. That cup was the road she took to express her love to someone who she knew would appreciate that road. Doing good works for God, praying, Bible study, whatever, isn't the rent you pay. It's the road a beloved son or daughter walks to express their love to the God they already know loves them unshakably, unchangeably, and undeservedly. When you know that, you get the gospel because that's the kind of gospel obedience God's looking for. Finally, it corrupts our witness. When Christianity becomes a place where you walk around feeling quietly disappointed and God is quietly disappointed in you, What kind of witness are you (laughs) about God? What do you make Christianity look like? I haven't done enough for my God. I haven't done enough. Now, if you're here and you're a skeptic, uh, do you think you'd be attracted to this kind of religion? Oh, I haven't done enough for my God. I'm just always feeling like I disappoint him. 
Like, no offense, but if I was a skeptic, I would run the other way. Because that's just like every other religion and every other fitness program and every other freaking performance treadmill I have to get on every day at work, for fitness, at life, in relationships, when I go online for dating, when I deal with trying to parent, I'm just on a treadmill all the time. Where do I get off the treadmill? And if that's what Christians are giving me as a skeptic, I would just walk the other way. But by the grace of God, I met Christians who felt the joy of being God's children undeservedly, who felt the joy of God's unquenchable love and the power of their joy and their gratitude attracted me. You empty the cross of its power and you make it about you when you add to the gospel. And therefore, you empty your own life of gratitude and joy, and you empty your witness to a weary world looking for a place to get off the treadmill. Paul says, don't mess with the gospel. It's from God. Paul says, don't mess with the gospel. It's the only solution. We need deliverance from our sin. And Paul says, don't mess with the gospel. It corrupts your relationship with God, and it corrodes your soul. If you're here and you're curious about Christianity, you need to hear this. The gospel is not just another religion. Tim Keller put it, I think, very well. The founders of most religions said basically this, I am a prophet come to help you find God. That's every other religion, or most of them. Jesus, he says, is the only one who came and said, I'm God, come to find you. Let God find you. Let God's mercy crash down upon you. Admit you need deliverance. Admit you need help. You don't just need more information. You need deliverance from your own selfishness and your own guilt. And Jesus will give that to you. Come to him and let him rain grace upon you. Christian, if you're here, let grace rule in your relationship with God. Don't add. Are you worried it will make you complacent? I always am worried it'll make me complacent, but you know what it actually does? It adds anxiety. It adds duty. If I do well, it adds pride. If I don't do well, it adds discouragement, and none of those are meant to be my walking partners through the life of being a Christian. Grace doesn't breed complacency. It breeds gratitude, love, and joy. It breaks the grip and the beauty of sin and makes God beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your glorious grace to us. We love you and we praise you. Help us not to add to the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. All right, uh, here we go. Uh, society paints Christians as bigots and hateful since we refuse to change our stance on certain positions. This passage says we can't change the gospel or preach a different gospel. What do we do? How do we reconcile this? Um, so uh, I think I get this question, this is probably the fifth straight week that we've got this question. And so I think we're probably going to need to do a seminar on how to relate to a culture that, that disagrees with us again. Uh, but the bottom line is, Jesus had the same problem. This isn't new. Christians back then had the same problem. Their ethics didn't fit 
with a much more sexually permissive culture that they faced in the Roman Empire. They didn't compromise on the beauty of sexuality as they saw it and, and the fact that it was restricted to the marriage bed of a man and woman. They, they didn't compromise on that. They didn't bend because it wasn't the real issue. But the other thing that they, they didn't do was they didn't hate those who disagreed with them. They loved them because the gospel taught them that the people that, that, that seem to be their adversaries culturally and otherwise are not their true enemies. Their true enemies are the dark forces of spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And so they saw those who were condemning them and even persecuting them as people who were servants of an evil force who needed to have their freedom. Um, if this gospel of grace is not a gospel of works, truly transforms, why are so many Christians who act as non-Christians? And why do so many non-Christians act as Christians? Uh, I will have to respectfully, I think I know what your point is, but I would have to respectfully say I, I disagree with your conclusion. There aren't many Christians who act as non-Christians. There are many Christians who struggle with some of the same things as non-Christians do because we're all humans. We all have the same struggle. Money, sex, power, career, all these things tempt all of us. And so since we all have the same struggles, we, we can sometimes at points do that. But very few people who are truly Christian, uh, just give into it without battling it. If the Holy Spirit's in you, the Holy Spirit's helping you fight to become more loving and more caring. And, and why are the, the non-Christians act as Christians? Um, the, the central point I wanna make right now, and you need to hear this, is outward behavior does not define whether you are a Christian or not. Never was, never will be. That's part of what we're going to delve into. This question assumes that there are non-Christians who act as Christians. Um, do they? Do they adopt our ethics? Do these non-Christians adopt that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life? Do they come to church regularly to worship? Do they go to small group? I, I, no. They're probably nice, morally upright people. And so the question assumes that that makes them Christians. That's the, that is not Christianity. Christianity is the love of God from a grateful heart that has been changed by understanding the grace of God and Jesus. And I have not ever met a person who is not yet a Christian who feels the love of God from a grateful heart because they've accepted Jesus. It's just, th those two are so mutually. Okay, I need to probably get here. There's a few more questions. Uh, I'll get one more. What about those who feel no guilt? Um, trying to tell them that they have a problem only offends them. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, people who feel no guilt, um, you, can't, <laughs> you can't stir up guilt in them. You're absolutely right. Is it a waiting and praying game at this point? Absolutely. You pray and you love and you wait for them to go. You know, I don't feel any guilt, but you're living a pretty amazing life of joy and gratitude. Um, what you will find with most of these people who act like Christians to use the former question and, and to go into this question is they're usually very nice people. They're usually very morally upright people, but they don't generally walk around with a sense of, man, I don't deserve this. I'm so grateful. I don't deserve any of these blessings. That sense of joy and gratitude, that childlike wonder that, uh, uh, at the blessings that you have received is quite rare in our culture. I have, I have met with a ton of really morally upright people who are not yet Christians, and they are very morally upright, but they don't have that pervading sense of gratitude 
for everything in their life, that, that they are undeserved recipients of it. That is a mark uh, of the gospel. And when you show that to them, they are intrigued. They really are. All right, I'm going to stop now and we're going to go to a table where we remind ourselves of the freeness and unconditional nature of God's grace by going to what Christians call the Lord's Supper or communion. Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in memory of me. A little while after that, he took a cup. It was probably the third cup of the meal. It was a, it was a sacramental meal uh, celebrating Passover. And he picked up what was probably the cup of redemption in the liturgy of that meal and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. And Jesus, therefore, was asking us to regularly eat bread and drink wine because they symbolize the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood and the ultimate, satisfactory, fully atoning act whereby Jesus took all our guilt and paid for it such that he could say before he died, it is finished. Your acceptance, your being ple pleasant and pleasing to God is finished. It's done. Jesus did it for you. Rejoice in that. If you're here and you are a baptized believer in Jesus, the table is open for you. We're going to pass gluten-free bread around and wine and grape juice around to you. The wine will be darker than the grape juice. And we urge you to accept with gratitude and joy the gift of Jesus and rehearse it by eating the bread whenever you're ready and drinking the cup at your own, on your own time. I'm going to pray now. And then I'm going to invite you. If you're here, and, and I have not described you yet, if you're here and you're still curious about the Christian faith, I ask you to read the prayers and ponder what it might mean to let God's grace reign into your life. Father, thank you for this food. Thank you for this cup. We pray now that your spirit would take it and make it real spiritual food and real spiritual drink to remind us of the unconditional nature of the gospel. Grace upon grace has been given to us in Jesus. Help us to remind ourselves of that and help us to refresh ourselves with the gratitude and joy of being your children just because you love us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.